Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. So uh, we had a bit of a weird thing <laughs> for this week's podcast. We, we had actually uh, recorded a whole normal-sized podcast about the concept of direct democracy, uh, and we recorded it uh, the day before the Brexit vote uh, because we were stacking up some some podcasts. So we had a little bit of uh, <laughs> backup inventory, um, and we basically didn't mention the Brexit vote at all, except very very briefly. Hirsch mentioned it, uh, and uh, and we didn't really discuss it. I think not realizing quite how big of an impact it would have, and probably not realizing the way that vote was going to go. Uh, and yet, that was certainly an example of direct democracy. So, realizing that, um, we decided that that rather than scrap the entire podcast that we had recorded on direct democracy, we'd bring everyone back into the studio and record something in addition. So what you're going to hear is first the uh, original podcast that we recorded about direct democracy that does not touch on Brexit other than a brief aside. And then after the end of that, we'll come back and we'll do another 15 minutes or so that is all about the Brexit and how that relates to what we had discussed before. So um, that's the story of this podcast. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, here we go. The world is increasingly technological. So we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. I remember back when I was in seventh grade social studies class that the teacher, Mr. Kemp, assigned us a project where we had to redesign the federal government in a different way, asking us what we would change. My suggestion was a fourth branch of government uh, to go along with the judicial, legislative, and executive branches. The fourth branch in my imaginary government would be the people's branch. I, I think I called it the peopleocracy or something like that. And the idea was that for many issues, there would basically be direct democracy where the public could weigh in and vote directly, a sort of public referendum. Uh, Mr. Kemp hated my suggestion and really trashed it. He said that it made no sense since the entire point of the legislative branch was to represent the views of the public. Of course, I think some of us think that's somewhat laughable as well. Uh, over time, however, it seems that there's actually been growing support for such a concept of what's generally now called direct democracy. Uh, some elements of the Pirate Party have embraced the idea of direct democracy, even creating some software called Liquid Feedback, which was designed to facilitate it. A U.S. company called Place a Vote built some software for direct democracy and ran some candidates under the label of the Futurist Party. In Argentina, there's the Net Party, which also created its own direct democracy software called Democracy OS. And then there's also uh, an organization called Flux in Australia, which has its own direct democracy program. And one of our listeners wrote in to tell us about Flux, which is what inspired this particular topic. So thanks, Damien, for the suggestion. Of course, so far, direct democracy campaigns haven't gone that well. Last year, someone tried to launch the Direct Democracy Party on Indiegogo to run in this year's elections, but only was able to raise about $2,700 out of a $500,000 goal. 
In California, there's a guy named Von Hugo running for the Senate on a direct democracy platform, promising that he'd take a poll on every vote and then follow the will of the people, but he doesn't seem to be getting any real traction. The only success story that I could find when looking around was in Italy, where the Five Star Movement, or M5S, ran on an anti-corruption, pro-internet democracy platform and managed to become the second largest party in Italy's lower house. But there are questions about how well that's actually working in practice. Uh, one of the founders of that party has been accused of holding too much influence and even pushing out members who he feels go against the principles of the party. And the party has drifted toward some extreme populist stances that some people think are kind of dangerous. And that's certainly one of the most common concerns and criticisms about direct democracy. As appealing as the concept is, there's potentially legitimate concern that the simple majority of the public may not be very good at recognizing what's right at a policy level. As much as we mock politicians for being clueless, it's not entirely clear that a simple majority vote by the public is going to get at the more nuanced details of policy decisions. Still, it's an interesting concept, uh, and so we like to discuss interesting concepts here, and here to, to hold that discussion are our usual co-hosts, Hirsch Reddy and Dennis Yang. And so I guess in the spirit of this particular topic, let's start with a vote. Who's in favor of direct democracy? Wow. Um, <laughs> sounds really like a good idea. All right, we have one one yay vote, <laughs> Hirsch. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's not that I'm just trying to be devil's advocate or anything like that. <laughs> I think, uh, okay, I'm going to say no. I think in, in most contexts, direct democracy is a bad idea, but I think in, there is some narrow context in which it's probably a good idea. And it, and, it, and it has worked in the past. It's not that it never works, but I think it can cause problems, as it has in California. So, so for people who don't know, the California example is, right, in California, we hold a lot of referendums that are a form of direct democracy, where if you can basically get enough signatures, you can get an issue to be put onto the ballot as a referendum, and the legislature is then sort of bound by what the people vote for, right? Right. That's exactly. Yeah, and that's uh, why voting in California is so fun. You get to vote on all these cool <laughs> referendums. And, and in practice, how has that worked, right? I mean, what we generally see are referendums that are um, sometimes confusing, conflicting. confusing, sometimes conflicting. conflicting, and misleading. You know, they they tend to position things that sound like they're in favor of one thing when the reality is down in the details. They're sort of pushing for the opposite. You have a lot of you know, uh, big corporate lobbyists who position an issue in a way that, you know, sounds really good, but the reality is that it's helping their interests, not the public's, right? Sure. So look, look, hold on a second. So, so, <laughs> so, you know, people Seriously. always raise the corporate boogeyman. And I think there's a lot of yeah. instances where, where sort of certainly corporations uh, do nefarious things. Uh, but that's almost the smallest problem with direct democracy, right? The larger problem, I think, with direct democracy is that it kind of amplifies some of the problems with indirect democracy. Like, what am I talking about? When you generally have a legislature sitting in Sacramento, right, trying to write laws uniformly for a huge and diverse state like California, um, it's very difficult for them to tune laws so that they are, you know, economically the right thing, so to speak, for the entire state. You know, so there's usually winners and losers and things like that. And, uh, that, that happens with any kind of law and any kind of sort of democratic process. Now, with direct democracy, those problems are amplified. And, and they're amplified because generally the things that are going to win 
in a direct vote or in a proposition style vote are going to be the things that have a good soundbite, right? Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a good soundbite, it's it's very difficult. And the kinds of things that necessarily lend themselves to good soundbites aren't necessarily the best policies, right? Like, so for example, Prop 13 had a great soundbite, which was, so, you know... So explain, what is uh, Prop 13? So Prop 13 is the proposition that essentially limits the increase on property tax uh, to some tiny uh, percentage every year so that, you know, local governments can't just suddenly boost your property tax based on the fact that property prices have increased in the neighborhood where your home is, right? Um, the rise is, is, is limited. Now, mm-hmm. in theory, that sounds really good. And there's a really great soundbite, which goes along with that, which is the story of the little old nice lady that bought a house, you know, in World War II. And now all of a sudden, the yuppies have moved into her neighborhood and the property prices have gone up and she can't afford the property taxes and she has to get kicked out. And so that's a scenario that you're trying to prevent by with this proposition. But the right. problem is, I mean, I, I don't think I have to sort of list all the issues with Prop 13 for our listeners. I mean, I think everyone's heard it a million times. But essentially what happens is because property taxes are not increased on people that have been the longest residents, you essentially could have someone who's worth $100 million paying, you know, uh, one-tenth the the cost in property tax for his mansion that somebody in a one-bedroom apartment is paying. Right. Just right. because they've been there that long in the uh, in the mansion. And even though the mansion's price is very high now, when it was bought, it was very low. And so, you know, those kinds of issues come up. And and that's a bigger problem, actually, in terms of sort of how, uh, you know, education funding becomes very yeah, difficult it, and things like that. And people don't think about those issues when they're doing the, 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 so, the, the proposition so when, vote. When they think about them, like what? wasn't the negative side of proper thing did didn't they do a bad did they do a bad job of communicating what the effects would be at the time when they were passing prop 13 it was difficult to look in the future even if you were against prop 13 there were several smart economists uh that probably sounded really nerdy right because this is something far in the future we hadn't seen the kind of insane rises in property uh, prices that we see now we also didn't see um the kind of uh the kind of rises we've seen in costs for education and things like that as well. And so people didn't really think about those issues or, or even the people who did, they just sounded like really like they were just being panic mongers. Right. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think and there's think some, there's, there, I mean, there's some issue with the idea of, you know, what is short term personally beneficial versus long term beneficial. Right. So a lot of people, you know, voted to keep, you know, to keep the property taxes low because you know, that's good for them. So you had all the homeowners who were happy to lock in the low property taxes and didn't want that yeah. to go up without realizing that that might then, you know, bankrupt the state and, and put other services that they rely on at risk. But wait, here's what I don't understand about this point is that, okay, so if Prop 13 passed with like 60% of the, of the popular vote. Like, why would a representative democracy not make the same decision? It's actually uh, the reason for that is is actually something that people don't want to hear, which is that um, legislators are not perfectly responsive to their electorate. And so you can often get other interest groups, non-democratic interest groups, to influence the kinds of laws. And this can be very bad as well, right? So, yeah, for example, I mean, like the gun control lobby right, right now has exactly. overdue influence on or, this exact issue. Or if you right. want to, from if you're worried about it from a Republican perspective, you could also say, like, you know, uh, for example, the teachers union in many states have a disproportionate control over sure or the, education. Or the, yeah, or the trial lawyers, right? So, so, that, so then it, what's it happens. Better? It happens yeah. on both sides. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. 
I mean, p- part of the problem is that there's no perfect system, right? right. So there's yeah. a question of which is a better system. So, so my argument against so that's that's a great way of putting it, Manzik. Yeah. It's really the balance is between um, how much do we want sort of perhaps uh, uh, direct democracy, which may lead to sort of technocratically wrong decisions, but at least will be generally speaking majoritarian in terms of the interests. Uh, yeah, and take oh, responsibility yeah. over like the way our society is being run. So uh, here's the thing, right? But it, does it, that does that actually happen? Does yeah, that, I mean, if you I have direct know, democracy, I, do people I actually take responsibility? Yeah, yeah. Sure. So I, I, let me ask you something, Dennis, because you just recently took part in an election. Yeah. Uh, I just I'm not going to ask you like the details of it, but mm-hmm. what was Prop 72? Uh, I mean, I don't know if time I had. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, okay. But what I'm saying is there was no Prop 72, but I'm just making it up. But but you see what I'm saying? Like nobody knows people go into the voting booth. They don't do their homework. The people with the best intentions don't. And I have and I'm talking about like the kind of group we hang out with is probably overeducated compared to the to people in public and, and and so you're saying don't trust the public you know what i'm saying is even our our peer group doesn't go out and do yeah. their research and it goes in completely ignorant so and, and if I, you're talking about a number of different issues mm-hmm. the idea that the public would be educated enough on each and every one of those issues to be able to weigh in in a way that actually matters right that that seems difficult right it, it, sure i mean it's all difficult like educating everyone to every single issue is difficult. You know, it doesn't mean that like we shouldn't take responsibility and at least try to, to well, take a pulse. Right? Well, well, Dennis, look at it this way. It's there's there's idealism and there's pragmatism. Right. And so there's there's places where we have uh, as allegedly like direct democracy. Uh, I mean, places as in sort of sectors of the economy that get sort of more love from the direct democracy right these are things like uh the criminal law like penalties and things like that a lot of times things to do with property tax and these you know are not the the places with the best policies right oftentimes these are places with with uh, for example if we're going to take criminal law like uh punishments are just way ratcheted either too high or or uh punishments for different kinds of crime uh don't sort of fit the economic harm of that crime and, and like, you know, you just see weird things when majoritarianism happens. Like, so, for example, um, you know, you should think about when we, in the case of direct democracy, there's often different kinds of interest groups. Right. And sometimes those 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 groups can be sort of narrowly concentrated in one sort of religious minority or something like that. Right. So, for example, if we had direct democracy in the early 1800s, right, right when the Mormons were trying to move into Utah, you, you know, the predominantly evangelical and Protestant Christian faiths in this country, if they had had the opportunity, probably would have used direct democracy to constrain the economic interests of the Mormons, you know, whatever it would be. Uh, or maybe even could do it more directly and say that, you know, people who weren't uh, Protestants couldn't own land or things like that, and and certainly those kinds of things have happened before in our past, yeah, and they're I, and they're amplified under direct democracy. Yeah, I, I mean, the, you know, the whole idea of you know minorities or the and, and the and the fact that you know minority interests often get squashed is that that's yeah. what happens when you have majority rule, and so you know that can be very very harmful for, for minority interests. So, you know, there there are cases where majority rule can come up with very, very bad results, right? Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, so, I don't think anyone has any argument against that. Right. So, so then I think, so I think let's take this dis- discussion a step further, right? So I think we're, we recognize that there are limits to direct democracy and kind of what can come out of it. But, you know, as Hirsch said at the beginning, like there are some cases where he thinks it makes sense. So could we narrow down and set up, you know, what factors or in what situations do we think that a direct democracy setup does make sense? And is there a way to structure it so that, you know, you could work in, in you know, in those specific cases where it does make sense? I think it, it makes a lot more sense when the people making the rules are really kind of narrowly constrained in terms of making the rules for almost their own immediate surroundings. So, for example, if you have a unit, a political unit of half a million people, and they're doing direct democracy for the laws that apply to them, I think they're close enough and constrained enough in sort of who they can affect with those umbrella so you, rules. So you think local, local so sort eth- of municipal? Mm-hmm. And, and it's ironically, that's exactly where we don't have direct democracy, right? We don't have direct democracy in the city of San Francisco, where it might actually make sense. So, for example, uh, you know, how our public safety money is spent, how our tick, for example, like, you know, when and how uh, San Francisco uh, traffic police can ticket your car or how much they're allowed to, to, you know, charge you if they tow your car. Like, I have not talked to a single citizen who thinks that $650 is a fair amount to charge for a, a car tow, right? Like, but yet, you know, that's what the city charges, right? Like, so there's strange things like that, which you really would think that direct citizen involvement would be a good idea, but it's not really happening at that level. Instead, it's happening at the state level where, for example, we will pass some direct uh, law which will affect some farmer uh, in Yuba, right? Which, which is like kind of ridiculous if you think about it. You know, so I think more local, smaller, uh, gives you also a better appreciation for the effects of those laws. And the when you when you pass a proposition, then and if it has negative effects, you have the immediate uh, incentive and the ability to reverse that proposition, which you don't necessarily have. Yeah. Now. But I mean, one of the interesting things that people point out but when you're talking about sort of municipal and local politics is that you, you often do have politicians who actually are more, you know, more actually representative. They're, they tend to be more in touch with the people that they represent because it's, you know, a smaller yeah. group and they're it's right there. a smaller, there. more directed constituency. And so, right? like, so, you know, I actually, I mean, your complaints aside, I actually don't hear as much demand for it in, in local politics because I, I tend to think that, that you know, city and, and really local level politics tend to be more re- reflective of the democracy, as, you know, as people would want it. Whereas it's the federal legislative body where th- that people feel often feel is most disconnected from the interests of the people that they are supposed to be representing. Right. I, I, well, I think local politics suffers from something that also happens at the national level, which is that you have coalitional politics. Right. So, for example, uh, public sector union workers and things like that are often very strong uh, coalitions in, in city elections. Right. And they have the most incentive to, you know, create a certain policy for spending on salaries and things like that. And they tend to be like the best organizers. Uh, Direct democracy at the local level is one tool by which you can sort of cut through that, right? Um, Sure. And that does happen at the state level as well. And you you can make the argument that direct democracy can also work against public sector unions at the state level. But um, the difference, I think, is really that at the local level, the rhetoric uh, and the sort of misinformation that can be... uh, brought to bear in a, in a proposition fight, right, uh, is less effective because people can actually see 
the pros and cons of different um, laws that are being proposed on the ground. Like, so for example, if we asked that the towing fee be brought down, I'm sure there'd be some kind of protest by the traffic cops or something like that, or at least some constituency. And they would essentially, they would raise different kinds of arguments against reducing the cost of tow fees. And we would consider those at the time the uh, proposition was raised. And we probably dismiss most of them because $650 is a ridiculous fee. But, right? but, you know, not necessarily, right? I mean, I can just off the top of my head without even knowing the details of that situation, I could see a case where you could have, you know, public union officials who basically, you know, get paid partly be- because of the fees that are made from, from that kind of thing, arguing that reducing that fee will lower government budget and they won't be able to support as many services. And so, you know, you can spin that no, as no, 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 know, being a- anti-government service. Sure. No, I know. But sure look, you could. Yeah, you could. <laughs> but look, what, what do you think the first argument that would be made in, in, a, in any argument to reduce traffic fees, the first argument would be made was would be that not that raising revenue is an is an uh, important goal but rather that a traffic ticket is the most regressive form of tax it's not sure. connected to your income it just falls randomly in fact it falls disproportionately upon the poor who don't have parking spaces who have to commute to yeah. work from far out of outside of the city and so it really once those, those arguments are rather bare people those will, people and those people are not citizens because if they're coming from outside of the city i mean there's all sorts of ways to spin that sure. and, and I, I i agree but so let me let me take it a step back because i, I think i think this is an interesting point an interesting debate about sort of local versus federal but but you know a lot of the discussions around direct democracy are focused on kind of federal and and you know globally sort of you know country level direct democracy so let me take a step back and see do you do you think there are kinds of issues where direct democracy could work at a federal level rather than focusing on the state or local i it's very difficult i think to think of a thing that that you would want to have sort of referendums about at the national level. I know Britain is about to have one about whether or not to be part of the EU and maybe that style and, and of thing. By the time you sense. hear this podcast, that will already have happened. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> pulling the, <laughs> pulling the, the, wo- uh, the, the curtain wolf. off. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the wool off. Uh, so, uh, you know, there was one recently in Switzerland, uh, which I think failed, which had to do with a basic yep. guaranteed income. Yep. And, you know, those kinds of like sort of really large programs, perhaps they really should be put to a referendum, but even in that kind of a situation, I I much prefer uh, the decision to be taken by sort of, uh, you would hope like, you know, people with sort of real policy chops that really understand the issues, right? And, sure, uh, and you know, and then the the response to you though is that you're an elitist if you say that. Yeah, and like to yeah, have, yeah. A, have a populist that understands like these big issues and actually takes the time, like how amazing is that type of society? Yeah, like, why, it, why can't we try? I, I wish we could live in that society, but yeah, you, so, but, but and, it would fail until you got there, right? And by asking our society not to even try, then you're you're dooming us to that failure already. Oh, let, let me put it a different way. I mean, how deep does the trough need to go between the state now and before we get to this like magical state where everyone's going to be like super into informed? it and re- informed yeah. it's not going to happen right i mean we there's a l- many w- very good reasons to be informed right now even without yeah. direct democracy and it doesn't happen right no, but do- i'm not asking for like every whole scale direct democracy we're saying that there's a spectrum here and like moving it towards that direction seems to be a good idea no i mean why would but, why would instituting direct democracy be sort of the one incentive to do what people already have a million incentives to do in other words Let's even if we had federal direct democracy, the things that it would affect you the most are decided at the local level, at your city school board, at your sure. council meetings, and people 
overwhelmingly do not attend those meetings. They just don't go. They just don't get involved. And there you have you have more of an effect on what is actually going to affect your life day to day than if you got to vote on some uh, federal level propositions. And people don't do it. So to say that giving the direct democracy would be that final kick in the butt that would encourage people to finally take interest. No, no, I mean, no, 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 it's not no, a final no. kick in the butt. It's just moving like our general no. citizen, like a role as a citizen in the right direction. Right. And right. So so part part of your argument, Dennis, is, is that um, and it's almost I don't want to say a backwards argument, but a sort of backwards <laughs> approach to it, which which is that. It would be a good thing to have a more informed populace about yes. the policy issues that we face. And I think we agree on that. And so part of your yeah. argument is is that by going to a direct democracy solution, it would be a lever by which to force the public to be more knowledgeable and more interested. Not, not in, necessarily in force them. Right. But like because, you know, you do hear a lot of like, oh, I don't vote because it doesn't matter. Right? Sure. Like, and I just think it would be one more little little pebble in the bucket of on you know in, in this, that will tip the scales of you know what like it does matter for me to be to pay attention it does matter but it's it's totally a spurious argument because it's like saying <laughs> that somehow california's electorate is more informed than like texas is because we have uh, propositions you know like it's it just it's not the case like no but, but it, there's I, no I there's no, no practical effect of it right? there's it's, more discussion about the issues that are discussed in, on the california referendum than in the issues that are discussed in the in the texas wrong. state legislature no i can of name of course there is name one proposition from this last election and don't look it up on google name one <laughs> you can't don't lie to me you can't name a one you didn't have any discussions about them and and you wouldn't be the only one i mean i i hang out with lawyers all the time who are you know, way more politically engaged on average, you know, and they can't name it either. Like, who is paying attention? Specifically, the narrow groups who stand to benefit from that proposition are paying attention. Yeah, right? and they're bringing well, those issues to, to bear in terms of, like, no. discussing them when we discuss they're them, They're not. Right? Nobody else knows about it except those so, groups. So, no, so, the, so, the, the right ones, right? We're going. But, well, I was going to say, I mean, I think, I think there's a... There, so, so Dennis's point is somewhat idealistic, right? I think we sure. agree on I, that. Somewhat idealistic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I agree but, with that. so, yeah. so let's. So, so, but, but is there? A, you know. So, I guess the argument is, or the question is, is there a way to have both of those things, which is both direct democracy and an informed public? So, so Dennis, you're somewhat advocating that you know having both of those things would be really good and therefore having one is a good step towards having both of those things Hirsch, you're arguing that the informed populace is sort of an impossibility um no not that it's an impossibility but look i, I think the difference between what my approach to this and dennis's is mm-hmm. that i i think of government as as something that should achieve pragmatic ends good governance good policies right sure uh, this is also my aversion to people that just want to like willy-nilly experiment with like pure anarchy or pure socialism right like you know things yeah. government is a specially tuned thing that responds to all kinds of incentives in ways that we can't necessarily imagine and so it, just to willy-nilly say like you know hey you know i i think in the bottom of my heart that direct democracy will lead to better outcomes pragmatically no, no, it's no, not that's, sufficient it's but not that's sufficient. not what that's not what i'm saying at all i'm saying that what we're trying to do is to create a pragmatic practical government and you know in which an informed populace would lead to this creation of a better pragmatic government. No, but but that but that's the pie in the sky non pragmatic yeah. thing that you've said, right? Like that. I just hope that that'll happen. A, Who's to say that that step. would happen? It's a baby no. step. 
Yeah. So, so, but it could could you do the baby steps in a different direction? Which is, is there a way to create a more informed populace first, with the idea of using that to drive towards direct democracy? And, I mean, and you you know, also there's a case that just doing direct democracy might move the lever the other direction, where people have even less of an incentive to get involved because they're like, oh, there's all these crazy propositions. There's a hundred of them every election, and I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, so like you, li- you limit it to like two. No, but what I'm saying is exactly these kinds of tuning are the things that who's going to do? Is it going to be another proposition or is it going to be some well, experts? Maybe the legislature, is that maybe that's their job is to decide which two propositions go up for referendum. Right? No, but, but look, Dennis, getting know. to this idealistic place can it's call, hard. It, it, it's it, hard. It, not only is it hard, it can do yeah. a lot of damage to your economy while you're trying to sort of fish around, right? It, and that's the, that's the issue. I mean, it, it's kind of like the same thing I hear when people say like, hey, you know, Let's just go to pure anarchy. Like someone will figure out how to do roads. Someone will figure out how to do cops. Or if you want to go the other direction, when people say, you know, why do we need private property? Everything should be centrally no, owned. Like, you know, you're placing me into this bucket that I'm saying we need pure direct democracy. <laughs> and that's not where I am. No, no I'm not even saying pure. I'm saying yeah. it's pretty. It's a huge step for you to say that it, it's a it's a good thing that we should put more things into this bucket of, of de- direct democracy, right? It's not something that someone has done a rigorous study of and shown that it's actually beneficial, right? Well, I, I guess I could ask another question to you, which is mm-hmm. if it's pragmatically shown that direct democracy, you know, uh, you know, leads yeah. to bad outcomes, policy outcomes, yeah. would it still be a good thing to try direct democracy because for the values what, reason? What's a, what's a bad, like who defines the bad outcome? As in you have these laws that, emerge that just in the long term uh, end up being laws that everybody wants to repeal, but yeah, there's no I'm, practical way to repeal them. I'm pretty sure that that most laws that people want to be to repeal have been created by somebody and therefore laws are bad. No, no, I'm saying, but are the <laughs> de- direct democracy ones, are they mostly repealable ones that people want to repeal? Right. Like because it's much harder to repeal something that's come about through a proposition than something that a legislature passes. Right. That's the issue. So non-reversibility. So maybe that's maybe I mean, that's not a fault of direct democracy. It's not. I mean, couldn't you couldn't you also create, I mean, a a semi direct democracy situation where you you do have a a, you you do contain checks and balances where you could have, you know, referendums. But there's then this is a grade school Masnick's idea, (laughs) a fourth branch of government that gets equally checked and balanced. Look, you know, not that not to bring too much political science here, but look, you know, if you think about it sort of like in terms of a systems perspective, if you have a direct democracy in which the legislature has the ability to reverse or must authorize, it yeah, essentially, it, 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 no, but you know what? It, it ends up not being a direct democracy anymore, right? It doesn't have any of the qualities because essentially the legislature That's has it. every incentive to, yeah. to, to essentially turn down those things. No, no, they don't right. because then, then they'll the, get voted out, right? Yeah, and, the, and the executive branch has, has the... You know, power right. to veto. No, There's right. You already have. You already no. have. Right. Exactly. The executive branch can veto. They have the the judicial branch can can yeah. overrule. Yeah, but you guys are constitutional. You can't have it both ways. No, right? we do. No, <laughs> you guys. You guys. Are, you guys don't have a consistent vision of it. So let let let's let's lay out what you're saying. You're saying the legislative branch, when something passes by popular proposition, mm-hmm. they don't have an incentive to just overrule it because if they do, they'll be voted out of office. So yeah. therefore, their veto. 
in your political setup, given the state of the world as you see it, is not effective at all because they would never veto. They don't want to lose their office. No, so no, what is the point they of would, it? It's they not would saying they it. would never do it in the same way that just because the president vetoes some stuff from Congress, that doesn't mean that people yeah. are going to, you know. No, but in what circumstance? It's, it's one issue on, of many, you know, where, yeah, it, you know. The, the president does not agree every bill agree with every bill that he signs into, into but law. you know there's a there's a good political uh, right? uh there's a theory around how the president's veto right like if you study political science it's like presidents veto bills mm-hmm. right when they don't control congress when they still have a popular mandate yep. or, or 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 they have their supporters at least support the veto of the bill right yeah if you're talking about direct democracy where it's mm-hmm. 60 70 percent of the people uh, vote for, for a something single issue for a right. single issue yeah yep. in what circumstance on that given your theory right in what circumstance would the legislature then actually take its mandate seriously and veto it either does or it doesn't and if it yeah, does but but if it does the veto then it's not perfect and that's what it, that's what that the system of checks and balances gives us. It's right. Like, so there's there's like, there are ways. I mean, we don't know exactly how it would work, but it's it's an interesting thing. So I I, I know we're running out of time. I do want to I do want to add in one other element to this discussion, which we haven't covered, which is that in the cases where we've had people running under a de- direct democracy platform, well, everything that we've been discussing is if we set up something at the at the sort of government level where there is direct democracy. But a lot of what's happening today, which we haven't discussed at all, are politicians themselves who are running on a direct democracy platform, where it's not the entire system is done by direct democracy, but that politician's votes are done by direct democracy. What do we think of that? I, I mean, that that seems like a pretty cool way. Well, let's say again. Run. I'm sorry. So, so like basically, so the, like, I'm yeah. a politician, and all of my decisions, I'll, I'll put it on my website, and you can kind of vote in as mm-hmm. a constituent, and then I'll... I, I will listen to oh, I see. constituents directly. It's uh, it's almost like you get voted into office and you make this vow and then you yeah, exactly. It out there. And then so you, exactly. mm-hmm. you're going to use your little website and do your thing. I don't know. That just sounds pretty awesome to me. Yeah. I, I mean, it really depends, right? Like, it, it's kind of like, you know, I almost expect you to do your job and know more about the issues than than people hanging around on the street corner. But, but I can see how uh, maybe there is distrust for your, your fellow street corner hanger out or. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, I and and I, you know, on the flip side, I can't imagine you guys have so much trust on them. But uh, I mean, just look at who you know the primaries for the Republican Party, and you know, you man, there's some crazy stuff going on. So anyway, <laughs> um, look, yeah, you you guys are basically saying, uh, we, it, uh, well, look, I'm not saying that no politician would actually uh, win an election with that proposition. I think I think there probably are places in the country where that is seems very uh-huh. attractive uh it'd probably go down really well in like say for example berkeley and probably san francisco for that matter uh i i wonder what the outcomes will be uh if you kind of have this like kind of limited essentially what you're doing is you're outsourcing the the voting of the for yeah. that one guy to to his to his constituency. Con- constituency. Or I think, her constituency. Or, or sorry, yeah, or her <laughs> constituency. Uh, you know, I don't, you know, it would certainly limit the damage. So because everyone would not have this direct democracy thing going right. on. That, this might be the, the compromise way to kind of get it done. Yeah, but I, you know, I think, again, pragmatically speaking, a big part of being an effective congressman or senator is being able to horse trade and make some sure. sausage in Washington, D.C. And this basically effectively hamstrings you because you can't actually offer to vote on this in exchange for that because you, unless you, you describe, can't do anything. Unless you describe, I don't know. 
Nah. I mean, you can you can still you can still lobby your constituents yeah, on behalf like, of certain look, things. Here, we're gonna vote for this thing as as a group, and here's why: because we've horse traded our vote on this issue. Yeah, but once you put it out in the open like that, it and gets it very should, sure. Right, so, and but, is but, but, transparency a, a fantastic you know thing for open government? I think everyone theoretically thinks transparency is like the best thing ever <laughs> for for <laughs> democracy. I think in practice. Uh, for the same reasons that sometimes direct democracy isn't a good idea, I think transparency doesn't necessarily work. For yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff I think cosmetically people are repulsed by, uh, but it ends up being actually uh, in a very non-intuitive thing, way uh, good policies for the country, right? Uh, and things that seem like a really good ideas end up being sometimes really bad ideas. Uh, there's a lot, if you ask uh Economists, I don't think there's a one that supports, for example, rent control, but rent control has a very broad based support in almost, you know, every city that has rent control, right? Like economists will say that's like a really bad way uh, to help housing affordability, right? I mean, they, they're, you know, yeah. and, and, and there's like no good practical, pragmatic research that shows it's helpful at all, but we still have it. So why do we have it? I mean, you know, or, or for example, the mortgage deduction, right? Like economists uniformly left and right are like the mortgage deduction worst thing in the world. But we still have it, right? And and there's lots of things like that. And I think with even transparency would make it impossible to get rid of the mortgage deduction, impossible to get rid of uh, rent control, even though those would be great things Tran to get rid of. Transparency makes it? Yeah, you can. The minute somebody comes out and says, I'm going to be the guy who's, who's campaigning to get rid of the mortgage deduction, he will lose the elections. He'd have to do it in the shadows to get rid of it, right? Or her. Or her. Or her. She'd have to do it in the shadows. <laughs> All right. right. So, so I think, I think we're, we're over time. Uh, but but an, an interesting discussion. And I will say, I think this is, this is the podcast that we've gotten Hirsch to defend the existing government more than any other podcast because know, right? you usually play the role of, of disagreeing with government entirely. So it's I only when idealists are around that Hirsch <laughs> takes his stance. Yeah, Suddenly I'm he becomes a, a, advocate. <laughs> a, a practical realist. Uh, but, but, but I think it's a really, it's a, it's another one of these interesting discussions. It's one of those things where I, I'm a little bit undecided and, you know, I think, I think there's some really compelling aspects to it and, and I'm really interested in it, but I think there are also a lot of potential downsides. And so I think, you know, sort of how, how and where and why it could be implemented are, are really interesting to, to discuss. But uh, that's why we had an interesting discussion today. And uh, thanks, guys. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back next week. All right. So uh, we are back, uh, uh, as discussed in the intro to this podcast, uh, because during that entire discussion that we just had about direct democracy, we did not discuss uh, one of the biggest examples of direct democracy <laughs> that was happening and got a lot of attention, which is, of course, what is now known as the Brexit. Uh, and we mentioned it very briefly because we recorded before it happened. And I don't think anyone expected uh, it necessarily to turn out the way it did or to get as much attention and uh, interest as it has. And therefore, we figured we could not release this podcast without uh, getting back into the studio and discussing once again uh, the issue of direct democracy and in particular Brexit. And I know that Hirsch uh, in particular <laughs> uh, feels vindicated uh, <laughs> by this based on his uh, uh, sort of vehement uh, viewpoint throughout the original podcast that direct democracy would be a complete disaster and you feel that Brexit is an example of that in action. 
Is that a, a good summary of your position, Hirsch? Uh, it, well, I think my position is a little more nuanced in that I, I, <laughs> it's very difficult to say that, um, you know, well, I strongly feel Brexit is, is a big mistake for, for Great Britain, but it's very difficult if you are sitting as a citizen in the UK uh, to say that it's most definitely a mistake, right? Um, Wait, are yeah, you saying and, that, and, 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 that and, Brexit is a mistake, or are you saying that direct democracy is a mistake? Right, so the, the, there are two separate two issues. two things here. Well, yeah. see, here's the thing. The, the direct democracy is only a mistake in this instance if you believe Brexit is a terrible mistake, right? <laughs> and no, I think I, those, those are two completely separate things. Of course they are. But what I'm saying is if I'm going to use this example as an example of how terrible direct democracy is, then Brexit needs to be a clear mistake, right? Because it, it, the thing, the, the point I was making in the podcast was that direct democracy often makes just very obvious mistakes, policy mistakes, right? That, that, that are almost, you know, that you could say factually are going to be a disaster for the nation, right? And it seems that Right when Brexit was announced, the markets went down, and and it seemed like it was going to be an unmitigated disaster, and I and I was going to confidently chalk it up to be this complete mess. <laughs> and that's However, changed. Well, here's what's happened, I think, in the case of this direct democracy, and maybe my point is still vindicated for this reason, but it seems that the political class in the UK is trying to salvage something out yeah. of the Brexit situation. I mean, yeah, and and they're essentially doing what legislators are supposed to do, and they're trying to patch up the damage. And so there's various kinds of things where they're essentially discussing how they can leave the EU while simultaneously repatching up a whole set of separate agreements that will essentially put the UK right back in the EU. So what are we talking about? We're talking about remain in the common market, uh, still pay some kinds of dues, uh, still uh, obey certain types of regulations that the EU has in order so that they can be part of the common market. Like all kinds of things are essentially immediately talking about reintegrating themselves in the EU. So maybe in that kind of a situation, uh, the direct democracy is 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 hamstrung enough that it, that it's not a unmitigated disaster. You know, so that that would be my comment on Brexit. It's kind of hard to see how it's going to fall out. It could and, still and, be yeah. disastrous, and, and I, I think I think there are separate issues there, and I think you know it would we could go really deep into you know whether it's, whether Brexit is good or bad, or whether or not they're going to sort of engineer some sort of soft landing to it. But I, I think that it's fairly clear that you know as an example of direct democracy, it's not it's it's not a good example of direct democracy in that you know. Even if, even if it, it works out okay and they engineer some sort of thing or, or, or as may happen, they end up staying in the EU or, or who knows what, they may have a second referendum. I mean, there's all different possibilities on the, on the table right now. But, you know, as a pure, like, example of direct democracy, like what happened immediately after suggested that, you know, the, the basic plan and, and it appeared there was no plan, uh, you know, if they voted to leave um you know was was sort of not well thought out and so as an example of like the population uh voting for something and having a good plan it's you know it it does not suggest a good example and i think i, mean, I think I, the, here's i would i would suggest kind of an alternative view i mean i would i would say let's not throw direct democracy 
out completely as a concept by this one example of mm-hmm. you know a vote that maybe you know maybe not everyone kind of fully informed them and I'm and I'm and I'm not saying that you know direct democracy is a perfect thing I think in this case it sounds like you know a lot of people you know in, in all of the stories that I read about you know about the people googling like what is the EU after the the polls had closed that kind of thing like those kind of little you know stories and whatever I think that since people don't have have kind of experience with what they would consider their vote you know mattering or counting counting then they didn't take it as seriously as maybe they should have right and I think just kind of thrusting upon everyone all of a sudden that you know direct this these concepts of direct democracy is not necessarily the best way to do it yeah. um, I don't know what the best kind of soft landing in terms of like how like if we had direct democracy like what is the best way to kind of ease everyone into informing themselves making making good decisions you know that that's a whole yeah, and, more complicated and, and, thing and i think i don't think I, but you know, hold on i a couple of the comments on what dennis said i think the first thing that needs to be said though is that that, that google article that article yeah. about the google searches was wrong right i think it, uh, it was well it was it was highly it was exaggerated, it was exaggerated. Basically, basically a very very small number of those searches which a bunch of media mm-hmm. turned into a trend story that did not really represent it was a you know an insignificant number of people were, were Googling having, having, having said that having but, said yes. that it was pretty clear that you know you know, certain portions of the population were overrepresented, as in, like you know, those over forty were overrepresented, and and those yeah. below twenty five were very underrepresented. Like so, the, so the it wasn't uh, uh, sort of an even slice of the English population that were voting. Right, in. and I think that so, that speaks towards the fact that you know maybe people don't think that their vote really matters. Maybe they don't care. They have, they have general but, voter apathy. But but I was still, I'm still not going to concede the point though, Dennis, because. It, that is exactly the problems of direct democracy. So when you say, you know, oh, you know, that was just a, uh, that, that those were the problems. Well, those are the problems those of direct democracy. Yeah. You, you don't have a, you know, a magical population to work with. You have the population that you have to work with when you're doing direct democracy, not some ideal population. And that's always going to be the issue. We, uh, in California, it's no surprise that propositions uh, create laws that affect all of us. And yet people d- don't show up for elections to vote on propositions in California either. So it's not that it the, the people were taken by surprise. In fact, just, uh, I don't know if it was within the last 12 months or so, but it was certainly recently, uh, the UK had a different referendum on the independence of uh, Scotland. And so people are are used to turning out and uh, they know that the vote does matter and it can have significant consequences. So I, I don't buy that. Yeah, but, it's but a you know, I mean, one, one of the things that we did discuss last week, which, you know, and, and I think a lot of people didn't even realize it with the Brexit going in, which was that, you know, it's actually a non-binding referendum and there's a whole bunch of now everyone's sort of trying to dance around that and figure out what does that what does that really mean uh and there's there's a lot of politicking going on but you know one of the ideas that we had discussed when we originally recorded the 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 podcast was this you know that you could have checks and balances and that you know and 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 have things that were not necessarily binding where you would then have a legislative body that then takes the you know recommendation and ideas of the populace and figures out what to do with it and that or you you mean rejects it you mean it just takes the referendum result and and just throws it out which is what which is the only way to deal with this right well it's it's not necessarily the only way i mean there are different ideas that are being tossed out but yes that is one of the possibilities which is in the same way that a president can veto you know what the legislature does or the judicial system can overturn a law as well right so there you know it's, it's part of the checks and balances yeah but see there's no better way to delegitimize a 
a, a legislative body than to have it go directly against the wishes of a referendum that was just held. I mean, yes, it can be done procedurally, but I think there's no better way to just kind of to just delegitimize the, the form of government. I mean, you don't want to be doing that. You don't want to be having a direct vote and then having the legislature just kind of essentially ignoring it or, I, I mean, or, 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 you know, or uh, just completely blunting what, there, what there, the people have there, asked for. There, there is reason to believe that that actually people in the UK might actually be happy <laughs> if the legislature saves them from their own vote. So a portion of them will. Yes, yes. A portion of them will, but the, but that fifty-one percent or whatever that voted for Brexit won't be right. But 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 that's a question. I mean, there are definitely you know there have been more and more people turning up saying that they didn't recognize this, and they've also discovered since then like a series of promises and statements that were made by those supporting yeah. Brexit that turned out to be untrue. And I think there's there, you know, it, it's certainly not all of or even the majority of that, the 52 percent. But, you know, I think a significant number of them feel that they were sold a bill of goods and, and has some buyer's remorse. Uh, and they might actually be OK with, uh, you know, with the legislative body stepping in and, and fixing fixing the mess in some way. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I think that that's why we like this whole series of checks and balances does seem to kind of work. Right. Like a lot of times. A branch of government will make a decision that, yeah, sure, you know, it, it passed that side, but the reason why we have the other other sides is because of these exact things, is that not everything is kind of a mandate that this is the actual truth. You know, we're, we're trying to kind of all work together as a society to figure out what we want, and a lot of times, you know, like it takes a process, like these, the system kind of seems to work nicely. Yeah. So I think, you know, I mean, we can go back and forth over the same arguments that we went over in the original podcast. Um, I just wanted to make sure that, that you know, that the podcast. This. Yeah, we, we had a touch on this. So, so, I mean, do we have any any sort of last thoughts in terms of, you know, Brexit specifically as it relates to the question of direct democracy? Well, I don't think it's changed any of our positions necessarily. Yeah, I don't think it has. But I, I think it it will be interesting to see what they do specifically in terms of this sort of blunting concept we're talking about or whether any blunting happens at all. Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that Cameron did, who's the prime minister in the UK, I think one of the things he did that was, that was good was he said he's not going to invoke Article 50, which is how you exit the EU. Right. He's not going to invoke it himself. He's going to leave that to a successor. So in a way, that is, yeah, he's just kind of passing the buck. But uh, in another way, it kind of makes it so that um, there's another political process around uh, determining who the implementer is going to be. And I think that choice of implementer uh, will certainly uh, be another way of kind of sort of offloading this, right? Sure. Um, because, you, you know, I, I almost feel like, and I'm not sure if this is true or not, if they call an election prior to that implementer being nominated, then different candidates can stake different kinds of positions on what will be done around Article 50, and then uh, that'll be another chance for people to have a sort of indirect uh, vote again on this EU question. And so I, I think that might be one mechanism they can do it. But I'm not, I'm not sure if they're actually the new prime minister will, t will take office before uh, another I, election. I think, um, and I'm not an expert in this either, but I think, I think there are, there's two steps to this, which is that um, Cameron is stepping down. There will be a replacement that is not through a general election, but then they've also, I believe, called for a general election, which will follow, but nobody's sure how a any of that will work in terms of the timing of, a, of, of uh, you know, invoking uh, Article 50 um, 
But yeah, there's a, it sounds like there's a decent chance that any in invocation of Article 50 would r wait until after a general election. Um, and it, it'll be interesting if Texas goes ahead with its threat and has a referendum on leaving the United States. That'll be that's that'll a, be very interesting. That is, <laughs> yeah, not a serious situation. But but I mean, one of, one of the interesting aspects to this actually is you know I mean uh, which I actually thought was 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 really interesting from sort of a political um, standpoint was you know throughout this process the EU itself um, you know very actively lobbied to keep the UK in the EU and against Brexit. And then the second that, you know, the Brexit vote came down, the EU basically was like, all right, get out, like immediately, like no, no negotiations, no nothing. And, you know, some, and <laughs> whereas the UK was then like, wait, 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 let's take this slow, you know, and, um, you know, but so some people found that a little surprising because they had, you know, fought so hard to try and keep it and then they just immediately like get out. But there's the sort of political calculus, which is, you know, the EU wants to make sure nobody else does this, right? And there have already been, you know, efforts made to have similar referendums in other EU countries and sort of, you know, all of the the issues that have come up in the time since the vote came down, um, you know, I think the EU wants anyone else who's thinking about this kind of thing to think long and hard before going through this process, recognizing how much trouble it can be. And they don't want it to be seen as, oh, this is a way to negotiate a better deal with the EU. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I think there will be lessons learned from sort of what happened with the Brexit, but I don't know how much of it will directly apply to like this concept of direct democracy and, and whether or not it makes no, sense that, or not. That's going to be sort of more general uh, just politics. I don't, I don't think there's enough. And once, I mean, direct democracy has had its say, and I don't think it's going to be involved in the process from here on out, unless we're talking about direct democracy in other EU member yeah, states. Yeah, I mean, it's a question of whether but, or not uh, other yeah. other countries would, would use a similar process. But, you know, and, and I think to Dennis's point, and you can chime in here, Dennis, as well, <laughs> like, I think there's, there's, there is a point that it's like, you know, with any setup, any system of government, nothing is going to be perfect. And and when you do have um, examples where they make errors, um, does that condemn the entire system? Not necessarily. I mean, it could mean that, that you could have tweaks or, or different plans or different setups and you can learn from it. But I don't think that necessarily, you know, and again, like I'm sort of wishy-washy on the whole concept of direct democracy in the first place. I think I I, I see both the pros and cons and I'm not yeah. convinced necessarily either way. I think there are some cases where it probably would be an interesting thing to experiment with. But I don't think just because you have this one vote that, that appears to have turned out in a not so great way um, that that necessarily means that the entire concept is just, you know, not yeah, worth the, well, What it does mean is that, I mean, Britain needs to take a long, hard look at why so much of the population voted for Brexit and maybe yeah. address those issues, right? And yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but know. yeah, I mean, th and that's a whole other point. Like, I think that, and I think that's one that's actually gotten missed in a lot of this discussion, which is that there's a reason why so many yeah. people voted for it. And there are, there are a ridiculous amount of problems with the EU itself and lots of governments. There are problems with all sorts of governments. And, and so, um, but nobody's nobody's actually doing that. <laughs> That's my question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, any any final thoughts on this little Brexit uh, direct this democracy ad addendum? <laughs> nope. No, I think I think we covered it. All I right. Think we covered it. So, all right. Thanks for for getting getting back together and and uh, revisiting this. And uh, thanks for listening to all of this. And hopefully, people weren't screaming during the original podcast. Why aren't you talking about Brexit? Um, and now we uh, did.
And now we did. And uh, we'll be back next week with something else. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.